0: we're good to go all right good morning to everyone who's watching and listening through five states or more that I'm aware of we certainly don't want to leave you out so thank you folks who are at home and those who are watching hither and yon we love you we appreciate you checking in with us today we begin the uh, Paul's letter to the church in Ephesus uh, the book of Ephesians we won't actually be diving into the text today uh, I'm actually going to use this Sunday morning to give you something of an introduction to the book, an introduction and background to the book which I think is is very important before we actually begin to work our way through the text. Um, every Bible study should be part sermon, every sermon should be part Bible study. So I do believe when you begin a book of the Bible even on Sunday morning uh, we should take the time to give once, at least one Sunday for an introduction to the book. You know how we work on Tuesday nights. If we were studying the book of Ephesians on Tuesday nights, we would easily eat up two Tuesday nights or so with an introduction to the book. You shouldn't elevate it. uh, I've said this many times. You should not elevate one book of the Bible up over another or up against another. But folks, this is a very important book of the Bible, a very important book of uh, the New Testament. So I certainly want to give it the respect, the reverence, and the attention that is its due. Before we go into our introduction to the book, as is our custom, I would like to take you to the Voice of the Martyrs Prayer Guide. Give you a nation uh, to pray for this week, weeks to come. Please always remember these folks. But I bring them to your particular attention, of course, today and this week. These uh, believers are in Laos, in Asia, Laos. Or Laos. Um, first of all, forgive me. Let me put my reading eyeballs on which I've forgotten so that I will be able to acquaint you with the needs of our brothers and sisters in Laos. Also, uh, as this is Communion Sunday, it's a very important Sunday, I trust you've been preparing your mind and your heart for this sacred event, this sacred command that we as a body of believers observe every month. Sometimes I wish we did more than once a month. Probably sometimes we should. Uh, I believe the early church actually observed the Lord's Supper every single Sunday that they met. But uh, we're certainly going to take advantage of honoring that command this morning. So it's a very, very important time in in the life of the life of the church. Now let me commit to you, our brothers and sisters in Christ who are in Laos, According to the Voice of the Martyrs Ministry, this is a restricted nation. The government-controlled Lao Evangelical Church, yes, a government-controlled Laos Evangelical Church, is allowed to exist, but the communist government and Buddhist monks, interestingly enough, actively persecute Christians. Poverty, lack of infrastructure, and mountainous terrain also make evangelistic outreach quite a challenge. Thanks to bold evangelists, however, the Church of Christ continues to grow even as it experiences ongoing persecution. Most Laotians consider themselves Buddhist, but they practice an odd syncretistic version or combination version of Buddhism mixed with old tribal paganism or tribal animism. Most believers are persecuted by family members or village authorities who are concerned that Christians offend the spirits. Isn't that interesting? Because spiritual warfare, that's part and parcel of what Ephesians is all about. Who are these spirits? Are they real? How are we to deal with them? Who's the real spiritual power and authority in this world? Very interesting that we're reading about this sort of thing when we begin the book of Ephesians, which is probably the most explicit book in the New Testament about the spirit world and spiritual warfare the central government persecutes Christians occasionally but there are signs of improvement that's good news Christianity is viewed as an American or Western religion or as a tool of the CIA to undermine the Laotian regime now how bizarre is that sounds thoroughly communist propaganda now doesn't it many Laotians also believe Christians anger the spirits interesting house churches and church buildings exist But the vast majority do not have a trained pastor. In most villages, no church buildings are allowed. If village leaders notice that a house church is growing, they will try to stop it. Christians often are unable to get jobs, most of which are through the government. And they commonly are denied medical treatment, education, and other social services. There are no open Bible schools in the country. The Laos Evangelical Church is the only government-recognized church. Laos believers are often arrested and held for upwards of a week. Bibles are not sold in bookstores. Government-sanctioned churches sell Bibles and other organizations bring Bibles in with legal permission. It is usually not a problem to bring one or two Bibles across the border, but Christians encounter problems when they bring in large amounts of Bibles or distribute them in large numbers. Voice of the Martyrs distributes Bibles, prints literature, and provides audio devices loaded with Scripture and other Christian materials particularly in the minority languages of the country. Voice of the Martyrs also responds to persecution incidents by relocating evicted families inside Laos and providing food and other immediate needs and providing additional help on a case-by-case basis. So please pray for these folks in this very troubled and distressed country. Life is certainly not easy for them there. We should be uh, certainly doing all that, that we can to help these folks and by the way you're all well aware that from the very beginning from the very founding of this church we've given the voice of the martyrs but uh, from time to time in in our donation if you want to earmark our particular donation of a particular month or particular quarter to help believers in a particular country or what have you i believe you can do that so we may but of course giving to their general fund it's it's going to reach these folks but if you want To help with a particular need in a particular country, we can can mention that as well. With that, let's go to prayer. Sovereign Lord God, our Heavenly Father, thank you for this beautiful day which points to the world to come. Thank you for the magnificent, inspired message of Paul's letter to the church in Ephesus, of the ultimate realities that we are and this world is confronted with in this letter, this letter which gives us the meaning and purpose of the universe. You are the meaning and purpose of this universe, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Help us in our study of this wonderful book of the New Testament. Help us to live our life in light of these ultimate realities that this book, that this sacred inspired letter teaches. We pray for our time at your table this morning to celebrate, to commemorate, to worship in thanks and gratitude the sacrifice of God the Son on our behalf according to a divine plan. According to Ephesians, in your mind and your heart, this divine plan laid down before you even spoke this world into being. Thank you for making us and saving us to be part of this divine plan here and forever afterwards. I pray for Claudia and her family and her upcoming surgery. I pray for all the needs of all of our folks who have had injuries or accidents, those who have upcoming medical procedures, Reveal yourself to them in a very powerful way to appeal to them personally as, as you know best and as you can do best. Uh, let folks not be shy in asking for help when they need it. May we always be there to, to help them when they need. We pray for our brothers and sisters in Laos, this very troubled country. I pray for their religious freedom and their liberty that these folks would be able to have a taste of it, more of it. That Government persecution would be eased. We know that the gospel is spreading like a wildfire in that country and the evil one and his allies cannot stop it. We know that these brothers and sisters are waging spiritual warfare successfully. Bless them in all of their battles, on all of their battlefronts. Give them courage, give them the felt presence and power of your spirit and the power of the truth of your word to equip them and arm them to fight the good fight. Help us to do our duty in their footsteps and our country and our sphere of influence in this world. To hold them up as a beautiful example for us to follow. Come what may. I pray for each and every person here and each and every person who's listening or watching this morning and in the days to come, open all of our hearts and minds by the power, the gentle power of your spirit to receive the truth of your word and to translate your words into action in and over our lives. We pray for our president and our vice president, We pray for all who are fighting to maintain freedom and liberty in this country and its very essential survival, and help us to do our duty as Christians and as good citizens according to sacred scripture, and to always be willing to stand against the darkness with the light in the light of the truth of Jesus, the truth who is Jesus, the Christ, the one true living God, the cosmic Christ of Ephesians, the conquering Christ of the book of Ephesians. Forgive us of our sins. We confess our sins. Forgive us of our many faults and failures. Clean us up, Lord. Pick us up. Dust us off and set us on our way. In you, in Christ Jesus, as Paul says so many times in his wonderful inspired letters. And as King David would write, May the meditations of all of our hearts and the words of my mouth be pleasing to you, O Sovereign Lord God, our Father, our one and only Rock and Redeemer, you who are our only hope, and you who are more than hope enough for one and all. In Jesus' holy name we pray. Amen. Very well. We won't have you stand and read any text today. We're going to do that next week. Uh, we'll dive into the text next week, of course. I'm going to dedicate uh, today's message to give you a, I hope, a proper introduction to this this very, very wonderful book. Um, I'm going to give you a few words, first of all, from a great professor, an evangelical theologian. His name is Clinton Arnold. He is uh, something of a living expert, if you will, on the, on the, the book of Ephesians. Uh, he's written a wonderful commentary that, I, that I've been enjoying. Uh, but this gentleman has written several books besides his commentary just on one or more of the themes from the book of Ephesians. Uh, he also uh, has some uh, audible recorded lectures upon the book of Ephesians that Zondervan Publishing has put out. But he has spent about 30 years of his life preaching and teaching and writing upon this book. And needless to say, it's one of his favorites. So I'd like to give you a few uh, comments that he gives from the beginning of his commentary. He writes, This letter, Book of Ephesians, summarizes what it means to be a Christian better than any other book of the Bible. That's a pretty grand claim. But of course, this is coming from a man who spent 30 years of his life in this letter. The book of Ephesians clarifies the heart of the Christian faith, explores the dynamics of a real personal relationship with Jesus Christ, and sets forth God's overall plan for His people, for His church, and draws out the implications of what it truly means to live life as a Christian. Ephesians is distinct from Paul's other letters in that there is no conflict situation that he's writing about. There's no glaring problem that has prompted the apostle to write this letter. But this does not mean, however, that the Ephesians, the the persons who are the recipients of this letter, are problem-free and they just simply need a little pat on the back and are set on their way. No, there are concerns, but the concerns in this letter are of a more general nature. Paul wants his many Gentile readers in particular, Gentiles who have converted to Christ, to keep growing in their new lifestyle as believers by ceasing their former immoral sinful practices and living out the virtues commended to them by Christ himself. Throughout this letter, Paul's tone is very positive. It is very upbeat, but as usual, Paul is never compromising in any way. The words he writes are meant exclusively for the Christian community and not for outsiders. In fact, some of what Paul says would be downright offensive to unbelievers. For example, worshiper of the pagan god Artemis or Diana would take great exception to Paul's teaching of monotheism, one God and one God only, who is the creator, who rules over all, and allow me to add, is absolute and ultimate authority. And they would also take great umbrage to Paul's teaching that local pagan religions are actually evil and even demonic. Similarly, an unbelieving Jew from the local synagogue would continue to be incensed over the way that Paul portrays Jesus of Nazareth in divine terms, affirms Jesus of Nazareth as the fulfillment of all of Israel's hopes, and declares He to be the fulfillment, the purpose of the ancient Old Testament Jewish scriptures. In a similar way, Ephesians has much to say that is not politically correct in our contemporary world and culture. Paul has a great deal to say to the so-called evangelical church of today that would cause many to squirm and feel rather uncomfortable. When we carefully examine this letter, it's remarkable how many issues this letter addresses that are still hot topics and issues in today's church. Here are a few of these put in contemporary language ministry itself, Christian ministry, the training of new believers, the issue of divine sovereignty of God and human free will in salvation, spiritual warfare, of course, worship in the church, including the issue of diversity in form and style, spiritual formation or spiritual growth, gender roles in marriage, racial reconciliation. How's that for a hot topic? Let me make a big story short. If you want true racial reconciliation, Christianity. You want true racial reconciliation, new life in Jesus Christ. That's how it's achieved. God's design and plan for His church, His people in this world. The basis and call for Christian unity. The gospel in a pagan context, that is the gospel as opposed to pagan religions. The proper teaching of theology. Living in a context of religious pluralism. That is how you, as a Christian believer, lives in a society that has numerous pagan religions around you. And oh yes, America has plenty. Just as many as the Ephesians were confronted with in the first century A.D. The gift of being an apostle. The gift of what Paul calls prophecy. What is that all about? Um, the role of the Jewish Old Testament in the life of a New Testament Christian. Local church and missions and missionaries, intercessory prayer in a Christian life, how we should be praying for other Christians, Um, the nature of spiritual power, the true nature of spiritual power. What is the spirit world really, and what is it all about, and how are we to confront it and live with it? And, of course, the ongoing work of the evil one and demons, his allies human and spiritual. Christians will discover that every paragraph of this book, this letter, is filled with content that is more than relevant to Christians in local churches today, wherever they are located. Author. Who's the author of this book? Paulos Tarsensis. Paulos Apostelos. Paul the Apostle. Let me give you a quote from the ESV Study Bible. I always try to use one or two of these study Bibles on a Sunday or a Tuesday night that I recommend to you folks so that you can consult it as well. Um, One of the reasons why I like the ESV Study Bible, the Zondervan, the recent Zondervan Study Bible is another good one for their text notes, their articles, but they give wonderful introductions to the biblical books. So if you have one of those study Bibles, please uh, take advantage of that. The ESV Bible states Paul's authorship of Ephesians was universally accepted until modern times. Go figure. For two thousand years Paul the Apostle as the author of this book, the divinely inspired author of this book, and the Christians in Ephesus, as the recipients of this letter, for well nigh 2,000 years, there was absolutely no question about that whatsoever until about the late 19th century, early 20th century, when we start to have the liberal apostate, quote unquote, critics or higher critics of the sacred text and of church history. There was never any question until that time. If we. Uh, I have a confession to make. Um, Please take this the right way, but Sunday mornings in some ways are so frustrating to me because I just don't have the time that I wish I had to throw so much information at you that I think is so important. That's why I love Tuesday nights so much. We have an hour and a half. And we have the leisure of taking the time that we need to really unpack the text in its background. I just don't have the time on Sunday mornings that I wish I had. Um, I could give you their arguments and how to debunk those arguments because they are rather unfounded arguments and really rather tedious. Um, But Paul is the author of this letter, the Ephesians are the true recipients. There is more than enough internal evidence, that means evidence inside the Bible and the letter itself to prove that, and there is a host of external evidence from very early church history to prove that, yes, Paul is the bona fide author of this letter and that the Ephesian church are the bona fide recipients. More than enough internal and external evidence. The Zondervan Study Bible, let me give you an interesting quote they make from their introduction, Ephesians is the quintessential Pauline document. Isn't that interesting? They say that this is the quintessential theological preaching and teaching of the Apostle Paul, this letter. It so perfectly sums up his inspired ministry from the Holy Spirit as the great apostle to the Gentiles, to the pagan world. That's quite a claim, but I think it's, it is appreciably true, Yes. The quintessential Pauline document summing up many important themes of Paul's letters, summing up the theology of his personal ministry as an apostle personally commissioned by Christ to go out to the Gentiles, the non-Jewish world, the pagan world at large, and give them the truth about the one true living God, the true spiritual authority and power in this universe. End quote. Throughout the history of the Christian church it's been universally accepted. There was never any doubt or question that the letter was written and, or dictated by Paul himself. We know Paul often had a secretary in amanuensis. He's probably pacing a hole in the floor, gesticulating wildly. Paul must have been, I mean, we know what an on-fire personality he was, while um, Timothy or one of his other scribes must have been absolutely burning up the papyrus as the Spirit inspired the Apostle. I would love to have been a fly on the wall. Wouldn't you? When some of this was taking place. Um, Never forget in the doctrine of divine inspiration. This is Paul's letter, yes, but these are the words of God. These are Theonustos words. They are breathed out by God into His inspired Apostle and thus given to posterity to his people in any age and every age. These words are applicable to all Christians. By the way, somebody asked me not long ago, what's a good book about divine inspiration? It's a great book, and I'm glad it's hitting the shelves again. Written by a wonderful theologian born and bred in Lexington, Kentucky. That is Benjamin Breckenridge Warfield, or B.B. Warfield for short. He taught at Princeton Theological Seminary when it was a good uh, conservative theological seminary. And he wrote one of the best books about the divine inspiration of the Bible. If you're so inclined, get that book and read it. You will be the better for it. Now, yes, such is this letter's acceptance from the times of the very early church folks, from some of the first writings of the very earliest Christians outside of the Bible. Paul's authorship was accepted. In the Ephesian church as the initial recipients, all of this was accepted by our church fathers and early church historians. Now, Paul wasn't the only person who had a hand in establishing the church of Ephesus, but he was the leader. He was the primary principal moving force or mover and shaker, as we would say, in establishing the church of Ephesus himself. Although he did have some help. Okay. And Paul established the Christian church here in Ephesus during what we commonly refer to as his second, the end of his second, and his third missionary tour of duty, or his third missionary journey. Write this down if, if you wish to. Here's your homework. Go back and read the end of Acts chapter 18 and all of Acts chapter 19. The, this is one of the most tumultuous and dramatic, and if I may use the word, exciting chapters in the book of Acts. Uh, The gospel of Jesus Christ did not come into Ephesus quietly. (laughs) There was a rather tumultuous founding of the church in Ephesus, as you very well know, and in other churches in the book of Acts as well. I was going to read through this chapter with you quickly this Sunday morning, uh, but uh, time probably won't permit So I encourage you in your devotions this week or in the days to come, read the end of Acts chapter 18 and read all of Acts chapter 19. It is the founding of the church in Ephesus, and it is quite a story. And that will help you with the issues that Paul is addressing in this letter to this church that he writes about 10 years later after it was founded. In fact, next Sunday perhaps uh, together we probably will read through this chapter just to put it in your mind. And we probably will be referring to these chapters in the book of Acts from time to time as we work our way through the book. Paul served and ministered in Ephesus for a total of about three years, or a little more than three years before moving on to found churches and to spread the gospel elsewhere. He was in Ephesus about A.D. 53 to about A.D. 56. And this became a very, very important Christian uh, community. The Christian community in Ephesus was, needless to say, very near and dear to Paul's heart. And Ephesus, in time, became an extremely important, even strategically located, home for the early Christian church. Ephesus was at a crossroads which connected the Eastern Roman Empire with the Western Roman Empire. And this is one of the reasons why Christianity was so strategically located there. It allowed the gospel to spread and thrive and grow rapidly in a relatively short period of time. Now, date, when was it written? letter was probably written about A.D. 60 to 62, roughly 10 years after the church was founded, maybe not quite. And it was written during Paul's two-year house arrest in the city of Rome. He wrote this letter in the situation and circumstance that you find him in in Acts chapter 28, ending the end of the book of Acts. He's under house arrest in the city of Rome, waiting to have his hearing that he demanded himself, his right as a Roman citizen, to be tried before the emperor himself. And in that two-year stay, while he's still permitted to receive Christian visitors and preach the gospel, he writes the letter to the Ephesian church and sends it back to them. Now, again, Paul was not executed in that imprisonment. He actually had his hearing before the emperor and he was set free. He was acquitted. He uh, was not martyred until about 65 to 67 AD under the second, or really the first great persecution of Christians in Rome by Nero the Beast. So about AD 60, 62 he wrote this letter. Now the place, where's the destination of this letter? Who are the people receiving this letter, the recipients of the letter? Well, of course, Christian believers who are in the church of Ephesus. Now let me say church as plural. He addresses this corporately, collectively, to all the believers who are in Ephesus or in the Ephesian suburbs or, as we would say, the Ephesian metro area or some other uh, villages and towns surrounding Ephesus. But, folks, this letter would have been given to dozens of house churches all throughout this city and in the surrounding countryside. First, it's given to the church the Christian believers in Ephesus, then of course it's going to be copied, meticulously copied, disseminated, distributed, circulated to churches throughout the region and beyond as it is sacred scripture for all believers. Ephesus was located in the province of Asia. Now that's not Far East Asia. That's not the Asia that you and I know of as a modern continent of Asia. When Paul speaks of Asia, he means the province, the old Roman province of Asia in the Mediterranean world of the Roman Empire, the first century AD. And uh, the old province of Asia is located in what is now west-southwest Turkey, the modern nation of Turkey on its west-southwest coast. That's that's the Asia that Paul is speaking of. That's where Ephesus is located. Um, About three miles inland from the Aegean or the Mediterranean Sea, now Ephesus is a major tourist attraction to this day, a major worldwide tourist attraction. I understand there's probably hundreds of, well, I don't know if it's that way now, but uh, well, maybe it is. Uh, Generally, hundreds of thousands, if not at times, they say a million or more people may visit the ancient ruins of Ephesus in Turkey major tourist attraction for people the, the world over. In fact, sorry, I apologize to you folks watching as the screen is over here. But if you folks who are present draw your attention to the screen, there are some of the magnificent ruins from the magnificent ancient city of Ephesus. Now, many of these ruins were built a century or so after Paul founded the church. But yes, if you go and visit Ephesus, if you're fortunate enough to do that, and you walk the city... Folks, you will be looking at the remains of the very city that Paul the Apostle preached the gospel to and wrote this letter to. Some of those buildings are the very buildings standing at the time that Paul was in the city and at the time that this church was founded. And probably in our journey through the text, Bernie and I will be putting numerous photographs of the ruins of Ephesus and describing their, their meaning and significance to this letter. Some of the finest examples of ancient ruins of a city from antiquity are found in the city of Ephesus. I cannot tell you how much I would like to get over there and walk through that city. I believe there's a couple members of our congregation. I believe Lynn has been there. I know my Uncle Ken and Aunt Judy have been there, but I I would love to go myself. It's a magnificent place. Everybody I've spoken to has been there they say it's, it's absolutely magnificent because it's a place that you can walk through and even now you really do feel like you're rubbing shoulders with the ancient world and with the world of the Bible and those who walk through the pages of Scripture. Um, Ephesus was a very old city by the time Paul arrived there. In fact, by the time Paul preached the gospel in Ephesus in the first century, Ephesus as a city was already at that time older than our country. Ephesus was about three or four hundred years old by the time the gospel reached this city. Many notable persons from the ancient world visited this city, traveled through it, and stayed there. Here's a few of them whose names you might recognize. By the way, this town, I thought this was interesting. It was not settled by native Anatolian people. Uh, Ephesus was actually a Greek colony led by an Athenian prince, a man named Androklos, and he brought a colony of Greeks over to found this city. Centuries before Paul arrived there, here are some of the names who saw the city. Xerxes, the great Persian prince, who is in the Bible. Alexander the Great, and likely is not his father, Philip of Macedon. The controversial Greek general, Lysimachus. The old Anatolian, uh, very rascally prince who gave the Romans a real fit for some time, Mithridates, called the poisoner or the poisoner king. Uh, the controversial Roman general and senator Sola, Julius Caesar, was in Ephesus. Pompey the Great, the Roman general who conquered Palestine and put the ancient land of the Jews under Roman rule, Pompey the Great, who became a rival of Julius Caesar in the Roman civil wars, he was in Ephesus, Mark Antony saw Ephesus, Cleopatra saw Ephesus, Emperor Augustus saw Ephesus. All of these people stayed or traveled through this very important city. So now you understand why when I tell you that Ephesus became one of the four or five most influential and wealthy cities in the Roman Empire in time. Probably only Alexandria in Egypt, Antioch in Syria, uh, and Rome in Italy itself were probably more powerful and wealthier cities than the city of Ephesus. This is a very important place to plant Christianity and for the gospel to grow and thrive, to enable the gospel of the good news of the true power in this universe to spread and to spread rapidly. How big do you think Ephesus was? You guys might be surprised. It's not a small town. Ephesus had a population of about 200 to 250,000 people. That is a big city, even by modern standards. Now, some Bible scholars believe when Paul was there, it may have only been about 100 to 150,000, but still, that's a big city. It may have been upwards of 200,000 people when Paul was there. So there were probably dozens of house churches scattered all throughout the region. 200,000 people in what we would call its metro area, let's put it that way. Ephesus was called the mother city of the province. Ephesus served as the Roman capital over the entire region. The Roman governor was headquartered there. Roman administration buildings in the Supreme Court of the region all were in Ephesus. It basically controlled that part of the Roman Empire in what is now Turkey. It's a very bustling, very busy, very... um, Oh, what's the word for it? Um, A very cosmopolitan city. Very wealthy, very culturally diverse, very religiously diverse, very ethnically mixed. People are coming in from all over the known world to trade and do businesses in Ephesus and a lot of them are staying there. So it's a real melting pot of the Roman Empire. Another good place to put the gospel. Into to plant Christianity, all right? Um, very important trade city, again, as I mentioned earlier, for conducting the Eastern Roman Empire with the Western Roman Empire. It had an important harbor on the Caeser River, which is all silted up now. It's one of the reasons why the city went into decline. It, there were some very bad earthquakes that occurred there. That led to the city's decline, unfortunately, as well major land routes pass through or by this city. Hence, once again, Christianity can grow. It can spread rapidly. It had a magnificent theater. We'll probably show you pictures of the wonderful theater, one of the most wonderful theaters. Ruins of a theater from antiquity are located in Ephesus. It was enlarged by the Emperor Claudius at about the time that Christianity was spreading there. Historians argue back and forth how many people could go into this theater we believe somewhere between 20 and 50,000 people could be seated in this theater and yes it is the theater which where the big riot if you remember from acts chapter 19 paul preaching the one true living god in preaching against Diana or Artemis and her cult, which was located there and held sway over every vestige of life for everybody who lived in Ephesus in the region. Well, Christianity was starting to upset the apple cart of the local silversmith's union, the local silversmith's trade. And the pagan Demetrius, remember, he caused a big riot, which rampaged throughout the city. How's that for relevance? And they all went into this big theater. And remember, the town clerk, the city officials, had to come in and put an end to the riot. Yes, at that time, there were actually city officials who believed in putting down riots. And they did so, and so Paul was spared, the early church was spared further persecution, and the the church was able to spread and grow there. Magnificent, grandiose theater. Also, it had a magnificent public square, a marketplace, the Agora. And it was the place where, if you remember, all of these folks that had converted to Jesus, had converted to Christ, they brought in their books of magic and the occult. You need to know that as well. This city was obsessed with magic and sorcery and the occult. And that's why one of the major themes of this letter is the spirit world and who is the real spiritual power in this world and this universe. And probably in that marketplace, according to Acts 19, or where all of these converted pagans brought in their magic books, their books of the occult, and burned them in a public display in the marketplace. And what does Paul say, or Dr. Luke says, it was worth about 50,000 pieces of silver, drachma, probably 50,000 days' wages, a fortune, an exorbitant sum of money. All of these events took place there also and I'll bring this up from time to time because Paul goes head-on with the cult of Diana or the cult of Artemis in this letter. Artemis or Diana was a very influential Greco-Roman God and the temple of Artemis and Diana was located in this city and even in its time this was considered to be one of what we refer to as one of the seven wonders of the ancient world. It was a magnificent temple. It was considered as something of a bank for the region. And the cult of Artemis held influence over everyone in Ephesus and the surrounding region. The temple of Artemis was, it was four times the size of the Parthenon in Athens, Greece. To give you an idea of the size and scope and that is the physical magnificence of this temple. And Paul is going to lock horns with this cult head-on with the truth of the one true living God, the one true living power. More upon the city and facts about the city as we work our way through the text. Now what's the occasion? Why in the world did he write this letter? Well, as I read to you from Clinton Arnold's quote earlier, um, there's no real conflict or immediate problem in that church that John has to address, like John had to address in his three letters that we just finished. The message and themes of this letter are Yes, first for the Ephesian believers, we'll take note of that, but for all believers in any and every age and place. Some of the New Testament's greatest themes and passages are in this letter. Some of the most oft-quoted and beloved passages in the New Testament are in this letter. Um, So it's not just written to address a particular problem. It's what you would call a theological masterpiece, a theological treatise. I would say next to the book of Romans, this is the most important letter that Paul wrote under the inspiration of the Spirit. It's a theological masterpiece. There's bad manifestos in this world and there's good manifestos in this world. Some have called the book of Ephesians a good manifesto, a Christian manifesto for the church, a manifesto of Christian truth, doctrine, theology, instruction for life. Let me give you a little remark from purpose, occasion, and background. That section of the introduction to the book of Ephesians in the ESV study Bible. I love these remarks, right on the money. The book of Ephesians articulates very important general instructions for Christians about the truths of the cosmic redemptive work of God in Christ, the unity of the Christian church amongst many diverse peoples, and proper conduct in the church, in the home, and in this world. Unity and love in the bond of peace marks the work of our Savior, as well as a Christian's grateful response to God's grace in their lives. Ancient Ephesus forms a very appropriate background to this book because of this city's fascination or obsession with magic and the occult, as I mentioned earlier. This helps explain Paul's emphasis on the power of God, the power of Christ over all spiritual authorities, good and evil. And on Jesus Christ's triumphant ascension as head over his church, as head over all things in this world, in this age, and in the age to come. The Ephesian believers needed to be reminded of these things in order to remain resolute in their allegiance to Christ, Christ as the supreme power in this world and in their lives. And you and I need to be reminded of these things constantly for exactly the same purposes and reasons. Now, let me quickly, relatively quickly, give you two of the overarching themes of this letter. Most books of the Bible have one or two themes which covers the entire book in which any other topic or theme flows from those major themes. Does that make sense? Let me give you two of the major themes and then a couple of the other topics that Paul gives us in this letter that flows out of those. One, Folks, Jesus Christ, the ancient Jewish Messiah, the ancient prophesied one, the one who is the cosmic Christ, the one who is second person of the very being of God. He is at the heart, the core, and the center of this book as the ruling authority in and over this universe. That's why theologians often refer to the Christ, the Jesus that Paul preaches in this letter. He is the cosmic Christ. The Christ who has authority over all of the universe and whose person and work affects the entire universe and everything in this universe. He is the cosmic Christ, the conquering Christ. By his person and work, he has been, is now, reconciling all of creation to himself and to God the Father. That is an enormous story. Enormous story. Number two, the Lord Jesus Christ has and is uniting his chosen, redeemed people from all nations and all ethnicities from all over the world, reconciling themself, reconciling them to one another and to himself and to God the Father as his church. This great accomplishment is accomplished through the will, the decree, the power, the plan, the sovereign working of the triune God, Father, Son, and Spirit. The blessings of God's work, Christ's work. Now this is personal. This is how you and I appropriate this work for ourselves. This accomplished work of Christ. The accomplished work of Christ, this reconciling work of Christ. You receive it, you appropriate it. Is people receive and appropriate this by faith alone, through God's grace alone, sola Christo, sola gratia, as the reformers would shout at the time of the Reformation. I quote the ESV Study Bible again. In light of these great truths, that is, in light of the truths of what Paul is going to teach you in this letter, what's the result? how should we be living? Christians are to lead lives that are a fitting tribute of gratitude to their great Lord, End quote. Now other themes or sub-themes, key themes in the letter. Once again, some of the greatest in the New Testament. Ephesians let me make this remark too Ephesians, like the book of Romans, is a commentary on the gospel it's a very in-depth commentary of the gospel who Jesus is, what he accomplished, what does all that mean What in the world does all that mean for you and I? What does it mean to the world around us? What does it mean to this universe? The created order of this universe as we know it, as we encounter it, as we wonder about it, as we experience. That's what Paul tackles in this letter. That's all here. All humanity is fallen. The Bible teaches us the exact opposite of what secular humanism wants to propagandize you with. Secular human says, man is the sum total of everything. And man is basically good. And if we just do a little bit of government engineering and social engineering, we'll accomplish our own utopia. That is a lie. An evil lie. Sacred Scripture teaches the exact opposite. Humanity is born bad. Humanity is not the sum total of this world and this universe. God the Almighty is. Humanity is fallen and sinful and in rebellion. Humanity by nature is spiritually dead. Not spiritually sick and needs a little bit of therapy. Spiritually dead. We have to be brought to life by the Creator Redeemer God. We have to be made good by His goodness put into us and on us and over us. We need a Savior. We are cosmic rebels and traitors who need to bow the knee to the Creator Redeemer God, the High King of the universe. We need a Savior. One of the most important messages of this book. 2. God predestined, yes He predestined, He predetermined by divine plan, by divine decree, by divine fiat, His elect, His chosen people, to be drawn out of His world that He would redeem and draw or reconcile to Himself according to the counsel of His own perfect will. And this is a divine plan from before He spoke this world into being. How's that for enormous in scope? Third sub-theme, God's lavish, extravagant grace, His mercy, which we do not deserve. By way of Christ saves sinners. This free and unmerited gift is appropriated again by faith in Jesus Christ alone and by God's grace alone. You and I do not earn it and we cannot earn it. It is a gift of God. Fourth theme, Christ's work on earth Yes, God Almighty did take on a human body and a human nature at the perfect time in the divine plan. He crashed the gate in on His own creation in the first century A.D. to perform the work which would save you and I and save this creation from oblivion. Christ's work on earth, His work of redemption, was and is part of this plan of cosmic reconciliation and His exaltation over everyone in this age and in the age to come. Another theme, this reconciliation. More on what in the world does that mean? Well, more on that later. This reconciliation work, this redemptive work of Christ, it includes creating a called people, a unique people, a new humanity, a new type of humanity all together in which unites people from all over the world from all ethnicities, Jews and Gentiles, brings them together to be truly one people, one church, one body, one kingdom, a new creation, a new people who will inhabit a new creation. Another theme Christ called redeemed people are, this may sound familiar to you, coming off of John's letters, born again, born of God, raised from spiritual death to spiritual life. A life pursuing holiness in thought and word and deed. And so, if we have that new life, we must reject, we must make a clean break with our old life of immorality or sin and rebellion, our old ways. A seventh theme, this new holiness of life, includes recognition and submission to proper, legitimate God-established authorities. Not necessarily the world's established authorities, but God's established authorities. And those who are in God's established places of authority must exercise very loyal, nurturing care for those in submission to those God-ordained authorities. Next to last of the smaller themes, God, by way of Christ, He gives you very important gifts, Christian believer. He wishes to. Because of the work of Christ, by the power of His Spirit, He gives very powerful, effective gifts for the mission spiritual gifts and otherwise, to bring about health, to bring about well-being, unity, growth, and maturity in his church, and to further the triumph of the gospel, the good news of the person and work of Christ in this world. And last sub-theme of all, spiritual warfare in this world. And here you have one of Paul's most famous and favorite metaphors for living the Christian life. The farmer, the athlete, and the soldier. Man does he use the metaphor of the hard fighting, hard campaigning soldier in this letter. Remember this life, this side of eternity, it's half battleground and it's half pilgrimage. The holiday I'm here to tell you comes hereafter and he arms you and equips you in your campaign, in your march as a Christian soldier in this world. Christ gives Metaphorical spiritual arms and armor for you to fight, to defend and protect that which is true and that which is right, and to do battle against evil, to do battle against the attacks of our ultimate spiritual enemy, the evil one and his allies, allies human and allies spiritual. Now, a few words about Jesus again. I heard some extremely distressing news this week you gotta watch polls basically I think all polls are basically a bunch of baloney not to be believed but some you can put a little bit of faith in it. I think this was a Barna poll and you even have to be careful with Barna's polls frankly but apparently this uh, poll that the Barna group took said that about 30 percent of people in this country who make the claim to be a Christian or make the claim to be an evangelical Christian, about 30% of them or so, believe that Jesus was a great religious teacher and a great religious leader, but that he is and was not divine. That's a very serious problem. That's one of the reasons why I want to proclaim the book of Ephesians. Because the book of Ephesians proclaims Jesus Christ as divine, the cosmic Christ, who had a hand in creating this universe, who is running this universe now, and will create a new universe and bring this one to its completion in the one that is coming. He is divine. He is the second person of the one true living God the spiritual and the spiritual power and authority over all in this universe and what it contains. He is the cosmic Christ. He is the meaning and purpose of your life and mine. He is the meaning and purpose of this universe. He rules over all. He is the divine cosmic authority over this universe and everything in it. He is now exalted above any and every other spiritual power and power in this world. He is what the ancient theologians would call the conquering Christ. Now, the book of Ephesians, the letter of Ephesians, uses this expression, in Christ. This is one of Paul's favorite expressions. And it's a bit of a shorthand expression for being bonded or united to Christ and what that means. Paul uses this expression in Christ perhaps more than in any other letter that he wrote. Maybe with the exception of Colossians. And this expression refers to one's relation to Christ in relation to Christ. In Christ means your relationship with Christ. In Christ means the believer's new identity in Christ. This expression also has much to do with the truth that Paul teaches in this book. Jesus is the head. He is the purpose of his new creation because of what he accomplished in his work, in his incarnation. Jesus is what Paul refers to as the second representative head of the human race. He is the representative head of a new humanity, a new human race, this new redeemed people. Adam, our mutual ancestor, was the first representative head of the human race, and he blew it. He failed. Jesus, in His perfect humanity and His perfect deity, he became the second representative head of the human race. And He did not fail. He triumphed. His redeemed people, therefore, have new life in Christ due to His person and work. So those who are in Christ have a real relationship with Him. They receive this new birth, this new life. So therefore, they're part of this new creation, this new humanity. They participate in His death and His resurrection and His eternal life. Did you know that? I hope you do. You have participated in the death of burial and resurrection of Jesus. If you are redeemed, He took your sin, your old life, your spiritual dead life, the hell that we all deserve, He took that upon Himself on His cross in His death. We participate with Him in His resurrection because He rose from the dead and conquered death, you and I will rise from the dead. And conquer death because he has eternal life and he is eternal life you and I participate in his eternal life he gives us eternal life those in Christ have a new identity you understand you should be able to understand this already from what I've said so far this morning this changes everything in your existence absolutely everything influences and changes everything Ephesians teaches that Christ's work is cosmic. It affects the entire universe, folks, all of creation. You can't get a bigger story than that, bigger message than that. Now the church, the Ecclesia, a few words on that. Trying to, oh gosh, I wish this was a Tuesday night. It's such a wonderful book. I have so much to give you in so little time on a Sunday morning. It just drives me crazy. Please forgive me. Um, the church. The church. Man, this is a book that tells you what the church really is. What you and I are is the church, as individuals and corporately, uh, collectively. The ecclesia, the church, the called out ones, a called out assembly, called out of this world for a plan and a purpose. This uh, also refers to the local church, but a lot of times in this letter, when Paul means church, he means the church universal, the worldwide church, all believers all over in this work Paul uses in this work this book this letter Paul uses several very interesting metaphors for the church probably the most beautiful metaphors for the church are in this letter and you know many of them very very well one a body remember this is where Paul refers to the church believers as a body collectively or corporately we are all members or organs or cells of an organic body becoming one with Jesus Christ our Lord as the head of this body. Very famous passage, very important. Number two, a temple. We are a temple. We are the temple of God in this world now. In the Old Testament, there was a physical temple where God came in His localized presence to meet with His people. The ultimate temple of God became literally the physical flesh and blood body of Jesus, God in the flesh Himself. Remember Jesus said, tear down this temple, three days I'll raise it up. And now in this age, you and I are the temple. The temple of the Holy Spirit, individually as believers and corporately as believers. Remember the Apostle Peter used this metaphor too. You and I are all bricks and stones making up this temple in this world. A temple filled with the presence of God, filled with His Spirit in this world. A temple built on, I'll explain this to you when we get to the passage, the foundation of the prophets, the foundation of the inspired apostles, with Jesus Christ himself as the chief cornerstone. Now, this one is kind of obscure, and I bet you may not be as familiar with this one, but Paul compares the church to a political entity, a political body. And this resonated with our founding fathers, with our founding generation. Paul compares the church with a commonwealth. Isn't that interesting? A political body, a commonwealth. In the United States we have four four or five states which are commonwealths. Virginia is one, Kentucky is the other. I can't recall the other two, but he compares us to a commonwealth. Church is a commonwealth, a unity of former ethnic groups, ethnic groups that were hostile to one another actually, and they're all united as one people, e pluribus unem, right? Out of the many, one. You want to know what the ultimate e pluribus unem is? The church of Jesus Christ. Out of the many, one. This commonwealth is actually of a kingdom, the kingdom of Christ. And this commonwealth is expected to do battle. Battles against evil, dark spiritual powers in this world. Old theologians used to call this the church militant, the church triumphant. Also a household household. From the point of view of the best-known social structure or basic human unit of a culture or a society, the household, the family. The church is a household and a family, with God Almighty the Father at the head of the table as the head of the family. Believers are adopted children. Believers are as a, God's adopted children through the work of Jesus the Christ. And last of all, probably one of the most beautiful of all that we are very familiar with, the church is a bride. The people of God in this world corporately and collectively are called metaphorically the Bride of Christ, and this is not new to the Bible. Paul, being the master theologian that he is, under the influence of the Spirit, Paul is drawing from the Old Testament. He's actually drawing from the Old Testament. In the Old Testament, the Old Covenant people of God were often referred to or depicted as the Bride of Yahweh the Bride of God, the Bride of the Lord, the Great I Am. And the same is true of the people of God in the New Covenant era. Paul just brings that metaphor right into the New Testament era. The church, the New Covenant people of God, are now depicted as the wife or the Bride of Christ, God the Son in particular. Christ is a great husband, he is the great bridegroom, who perfectly loves and nurtures and cares for his bride, his church, and as his wife, His bride lives with him and labors and fights alongside with him. And she submits herself to her bridegroom who is the King of all kings and the Lord of all lords. Also, God in this book is taught as Trinity. I'm trying to wrap this up before we come to the Lord's table. You get the doctrine of the Trinity from this letter. It's interesting. The book of Ephesians, unlike, say, the Gospel of John, The Gospel of John explicitly, in very rich and vibrant language, teaches that God is a trinity. One God, one in nature and essence and being, and yet in His personhood He is three. Three distinct persons who yet are one in nature, essence, and being. That deep and beautiful mystery of God as trinity. Paul doesn't explicitly state it in this letter, But he does use some Trinitarian terms or language. Paul most certainly teaches the doctrine of God as a trinity in his letters, and yes, I believe he does teach the doctrine of the trinity in this letter. Paul implies the trinity heavily. He uses what um, some theologians call highly suggestive Trinitarian language in the letter. Paul highlights the work of God in this world or in his universe as being Trinitarian, performed by Father, Son, and Spirit. Because God is one, when you have one member of the Trinity, you have all the members of the Trinity. And yet the New Testament will put almost into the spotlight or into focus, if I may say from time to time, the particular work of one or other of the persons of the Trinity. Let me give you an example. Your salvation and my salvation was won on the cross by Jesus. And we're going to commemorate that by going to the Lord's table here in a few minutes was performed by God the Son in this world in the first century A.D. Nevertheless, that is still a Trinitarian work. Here's how it's a Trinitarian work. Yes, when you have Jesus, you have the Father and the Spirit, yes, in His perfect deity, but also this way. Before God the Almighty spoke the universe into being in His mind and His heart, He devised the plan for this creation. He devised the plan for this world. He devised the plan of salvation. He devised the plan for humanity. He set it in motion when he spoke the worlds into being. Now, at the perfect time in history in the first century AD, God the Son, in his incarnation, invaded his creation to perform the work of redemption, to reconcile all things in this universe to himself. And when the Holy Spirit arrived on the day of Pentecost, riding on the coattails of the work of the Son, pardon the expression, the Spirit who's sent by the Father and the Son, the Spirit's work in this world is to bring the work of the Son and the decree of the Father to your soul and to mind, To bring us from spiritual death into spiritual life. That's how it's a Trinitarian work. Never forget that. Never forget that. You see, he bases the unity of the church as one upon Father, Son, and Spirit as one. The unity of the Trinity is the basis for the unity of Christian believers. Yes, in conclusion, I hope you have come to the conclusion just this morning that the book of Ephesians is some of the deepest water that a person can possibly sail through in the New Testament. When you're plumbing the depths of the water in the book of Ephesians, you are plumbing very deep theological water indeed. A very important book for us to know and to have a handle of. One of the things I like about this book, Last Remarks for today, the book of Ephesians is, yes, a very excellent book for you to apply to your life. If you want to know how to live life practically wisely and well in this world, yes, this is a good book for you. It has a lot of, um, a lot of good details to give us by which Christians are to live their life in this world. Yet also, yet also, Ephesians wonderfully gives us the big picture. How many times have I told folks in the few years I've been up here, never forget the big picture. Never forget the big story. Always live your life every hour of every day with the big picture in mind, the big plan, the big story in mind, and your place in it. This book gives you that. This letter gives you that, all of that. It gives you the details, yes, for living your life wisely and well in this world. But it gives you the meaning and purpose of the universe. The meaning and purpose of life. And all that it contains. Folks, there's people out there wandering around in hopeless darkness who haven't got a clue of what life is all about. And what this world is all about. I'm telling you, brothers and sisters, the book of Ephesians gives you all the answers. Come to this book and get the answers so you can get out there and give them the answers. Meaning and purpose of the universe is in this letter. The meaning and purpose of history is in this letter. Where all of this is headed and how all of this concludes is in this letter. The divine plan over all is given to us right here in this letter. Here's another old expression, quaint old expression, and it applies here. Don't lose sight of the forest for trees. It's true. How many trees do you bump your face up against every single day? Don't lose sight of the forest because of those trees. The book of Ephesians will tell you how to deal with those trees. But the book of Ephesians always keeps the forest in plain sight. Always keeps the forest in view to help you on your way. As theologian S.M. Bau wrote in a fantastic commentary I've been enjoying, The trees are beautiful in and of themselves, yes, but the whole forest is where the vision of majesty dwells. Buckle up, folks, for quite a journey. Welcome to the book of Ephesians. Welcome to the vision of majesty of the cosmic Christ. Sovereign Lord God, our Heavenly Father, thank you for this magnificent book and the magnificent journey that we are embarking on. Help us to apply the truth of this wonderful book and the vision of majesty that it gives us. Help us to truly live our lives in the light of the truth that this inspired letter proclaims. I pray this for everyone here and for everyone who is watching and listening and everyone who will watch and listen. The most important realities in life Paul confronts us with in this letter. Help us to conduct this study wisely and well. And by your Spirit, fill the hearts and minds of everyone who is here gathered here to commemorate the sacrifice of the cosmic Christ on our behalf. We are obeying your ancient command, Lord, to come to your table to remember what the conquering Christ has done on our behalf. And what that table represents Just does not just reconcile us, it reconciles all of the created universe, which we will inhabit with the King of Kings one day and forever. In Jesus' holy name we pray. Amen. To prepare for